Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm the Deputy Editor of Energy Intelligence Finance, and this is the latest in our podcast series focused on competitive intelligence in the energy industry. Today, we're doing something of a crossover episode with the other series on this podcast feed. So we'll be discussing the energy transition and the impact it's having at the corporate level as companies look for new strategies to prepare for a global shift away from oil and towards more cleaner sources of fuel whenever that may come. Uh, So to do that, I am joined by TJ Conway, our head of energy transition research. Nice to have you here, TJ. Thanks, Luke. Good to be with you. And we've also got Philippe Roos, a senior reporter and one of our new energy experts. Hey there, Philippe. Hi, how are you? Good. TJ and Philippe are both involved in our newly launched Energy Transition Service, which aims to help guide energy intelligence clients through the low-carbon transition. We'll touch on some of what that service includes throughout our discussion today. And we also have a recent podcast in this very feed discussing that service in depth, so please be sure to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But today, like I said, we'll be taking a look at some of the corporate impacts of the energy transition so far. And the early indications we've gotten from some of the biggest energy companies in the world is that the corporate shift could be quite profound indeed. So the first thing to acknowledge here as we start looking at some of these companies is that it's they're pretty much all European majors or super majors. American companies like Exxon and Chevron will not really figure much into our discussion today. So let's just start there, TJ. Uh, why, why is it that this energy transition shift has taken such a hold in Europe? And you know, while the U.S. firms are still not taking much concrete action on this? It's a great question. Um, and uh, I would point to, uh, to two main factors. Uh, the first uh, are external pressures, uh, and that's coming from both investors and society at large. European firms have consistently faced more pressure to take action on climate and energy, energy transition issues than U.S. firms. And that, but that's not to say that U.S. firms are insulated from this. We actually expect that they will uh, be under growing scrutiny in the near term. Um, a second factor is maybe more philosophical. Uh, it's, the, it's just that there is a fundamental divergence in visions and approaches uh, with European firms advancing more transformational strategies, whereas U.S. super majors are looking to uh, more to adapt to maintain their oil and gas focus while strengthening the resilience of their operations, both on cost and carbon intensity. Um, what I would say is that we, it's, it's also not just a um, you know, dichotomy between these two different types of companies. We expect all companies in the industry, including national oil companies, to be under growing pressure to outline their strategies for the energy transition uh, in, in the near term. Okay. So Philippe, at, at kind of a high level, what are these European firms pledging to do and what can we say about how they're sort of reimagining themselves as they prepare for the energy energy transition? I mean, are they launching new divisions, closing some old ones? You know, what is the nature of how these companies are changing their priorities and their corporate structures? Yes, they, they all have uh, net zero or net, near net zero scope-free targets to 2050. Uh, scope-free meaning that uh, their targets include uh, uh, emissions from products they sell. Uh, and net zero or near net zero means that they want to reduce emissions as much as possible and uh, offset any residual emissions with carbon capture, reforestation, and technologies like that. 
the I would say the automatic consequence of that is, uh, unless you achieve gigantic amounts of carbon capture, is that oil and gas production will drastically drop, especially oil production, uh, because demand for gas is expected to last longer. Uh, as I said, definitions and perimeters vary from company to company, but but basically BP, ENI, Repsol, Shell, and Total do have such uh, absolute uh, reduction targets. Then you have another set of targets, which are intensity targets, which are also scope-free, so also uh, applying to products sold. Uh, emissions uh, Intensity targets means that it's the emissions per unit of energy sold, per barrel equivalent, uh, megawatt hour, gigajoule, or whatever. It goes from minus 50% for BP and Equinor to 55% for ENI, 60% for Total, and 65% for Shell. Uh, intensity reduction targets, in theory, allow you to continue producing oil and gas or even to increase production as long as you ba- balance this with carbon-free energy, such as renewable electricity or biofuel. Generally, this leads to strategies and therefore CapEx focusing on gas rather than oil and on electricity, including renewables and to some extent uh, gas fire generation. And quite interestingly, retail power marketing, which is something totally new for all companies, and also, of course, the appropriate corporate restructuring to go with that. Mm-hmm. And I would I would add that uh, that you know when we're, we're we've been we've been looking at this from the research and advisory perspective uh, as sort of the energy in, it, transition implementation strategies overall, and I we, we've identified you know kind of three separate phases of this this implementation. Uh, they're not exactly clear cut, but um, but I think it is a helpful framework. Um, you know, we might not see radical portfolio shifts uh, until next decade, but we are observing a step change in activity right now. Uh, Europe's majors have, uh, in recent years, laid the groundwork for transformational change, including those targets that that Philippe has mentioned, uh, and starting from you know simply just disclosing uh, uh, information uh, several years ago. We see this as the, as a first phase. And now we're seeing an acceleration of action, sort of a phase two. Companies are embarking on the sweeping corporate restructuring that that Philippe discussed, uh, and while also accelerating large-scale investments in in low-carbon power generation uh, and and putting more emphasis on emerging technologies like CCS. Looking forward, uh, a truly transformational third phase, uh, we would see companies more dramatically restructuring their portfolios by reducing oil and gas exposure and considering more transformative acquisitions, which is something I know we're, we're going to talk about in more detail later. Um, and th- the final point that I'd make is that, uh, you know, this is this step change in activity is happening despite the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's uh, it, we're, we see the, the level of commitment um, being quite strong and growing. So you say despite the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, this is com- kind of a a point of discussion elsewhere, but uh, you know the question is sort of is the is the pandemic actually accelerating this or or even holding it back? Um, do you come down on one side or the other? I mean, it's happening in spite of it, but do you think? What do you think? Is it is it making it speed yeah, up? Yeah, it's a great 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 question. And in fact, you're you're right. Um, we we actually do see for various reasons that that the that the coronavirus crisis is in several ways likely to accelerate. Uh, this, uh, whether it's due to uh, investors uh, 
having questions about the the overall risk uh, of uh, of companies' portfolios and exposure to oil and gas and oil and gas demand, uh, or it's uh, just the the recognition that uh, that's that the utility space may may provide more more stability uh, of returns as well. So uh, mm. for various reasons, um, we've we see this as a, as a, you know actually beca- partly because of the pandemic as opposed to just despite it. Interesting. Okay. Well, we've mentioned a lot of these companies by name already, but we should also note that you know while they do have some things in common namely that they are European, um, they are hardly monolithic in their approach to the energy transition. So let's let's just uh, kind of dig into some of them specifically. Uh, Total of, of France has proposed some of the most dramatic changes. So let's just start with them. Philippe, what has Total said and what, what might their company look like, say, in five or 10 years from now? Uh, well, generally, if you combine the absolute and intensity targets I've, I've mentioned before, uh, you end up whatever the company with a radical portfolio shift with, as I said, almost no oil, a good amount of gas, and a lot of renewable energy. Uh, and it's 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 fairly easy to estimate based on on that on those targets. But Total so far uh, is the only one to have said, I would say officially, it's the CEO Patrick Pouyanné who said it that by 2050. Uh, he expects that Total will be uh, selling about 20% of liquids, uh, of which one quarter would be biofuel. So it's only 15%, one five of, uh, of uh, oil, uh, down from uh, two thirds in uh, 2015 and about 55% last year. So it's, it's, a, I mean, it's a very radical shift. Uh, gas would stay at 40%, uh, which was the level, which is the current level uh, in, in Total's production. And so they expect gas to remain more or less at the same 40% all through to 2050. But with a but, which is that a significant proportion, they didn't give any, any, any figures on that, but a significant proportion of that gas would be biogas or uh, renewable electricity-based uh, hydrogen. And the remaining 40% of the sales would come from renewable electricity. And it's not only electricity in general, which could include gas-fired electricity, which is, which is the case right now in the electricity they're selling. But they explicitly said that by 2050, it would be 40% of electricity and 100% of its electricity would be renewable, uh, up from a couple of percent uh, last year. Uh, you asked about 10 years from now. As TJ said, it, it will be it will be kind of gradual. I mean, there will be obviously two phases because ten years from now, Total said they would still have the same forty percent gas, forty five percent oil, which is less than the current fifty five, but still quite quite substantial, and only fifteen percent uh, in electricity, which is well substantial compared to what's what. The current level, but it's still relatively modest. So the big acceleration would take part would take place between 2030 and 2050. Mm. So you kind of alluded to kind of a, a top grouping or a top tier of companies as far as how how aggressive or how ambitious their targets are. Um, is there anything that stands out for any of these other companies, ENI, Repsol, Shell, um, and and how they compare to kind of a second tier like BP? Yeah, I mean, I think ENI in Italy is a, is a very good exa- example of how these targets, which are, I mean, 
which are targets to 2050. It's, tr- it's 30 years from now, but it's already impacting the corporate structure uh, because ENI uh, has announced a couple of weeks ago that they would restructure fundamentally their business. They will break up into two separate units within the same company, but it inevitably uh, raises the question of a potentially, maybe not now, but in the sometime in the future of, of a, of a spin-off. Uh, of ENI mm. and and those two separate units one is called natural resources which is basically upstream oil and gas plus carbon capture and uh, offset and o- o- all the all the uh, carbon dioxide reduction technology so basically that division would be in charge of the absolute emissions reduction and really of retreating uh, ENI from oil and gas, especially from oil. And the second uh, segment or second business unit is called energy evolution uh, with power generation and marketing of energy products. Uh, And basically, they would be in charge of the intensity reduction target and really in charge of finding growth for for the company. Uh, and it's interesting to know that refining is with the second unit energy evolution. But ENI said that by 2050, uh, its service stations will only sell sustainable products, mm. which means biofuels, power, hydrogen, perhaps some oil with some sort of offset attached to it. But it's it's quite possible that by 2050, uh, ENI won't sell any more gasoline in its service. And it doesn't mean they will get rid of the service stations, but the service stations will, will sell other products and refineries will do biofuels. Mm. Uh, and another example is uh, an interesting one is Shell. Uh, they have the most ambitious intensity target, intensity reduction targets, minus, 50, 50, minus 65%. Uh, but many people seem to believe that's their only uh, targets, and that's because the CEO, Ben Van Burden, repeatedly said that Shell is indeed targeting net zero scope free. Uh, emissions to 2050, but he wants to involve customers in that. And that's, that seems to be quite a strong commitment because Mr. Von Burden said, or at least suggested that Shell would no longer do business with companies not committed to a net zero target. That would, of course, not take place today or tomorrow, probably after 2030 or 2035. Mm-hmm. But, but that's, that's their idea. Uh, to get to minus 65%, Shell is counting on, on power very much. They actually said that they want to become the biggest power company in the world by around 2035, that's quite quite a strong uh, strong statement and an ambitious target. And it's not totally clear what they mean by that, but it seems they basically mean it's in terms of retail sales, not in terms of generation, uh, which is quite interesting because oil companies have some skills that apply quite well to power generation. It's more questionable what they have to bring to to retail power marketing, but still they have this target and and saying we want to become the biggest power company in the world by 2035 means presumably that they want to get bigger than the biggest companies right now, such as NL in Italy, which has 70 million clients, 7-0 of EDF in France, which has 40 million clients. So it presumably it means that Shell wants to have I don't know, 50 million, 100 million clients by, by 2015 mm. in power in uh, power marketing. Wow. Another, another consequence uh, is that with all these targets, it's 
it's difficult to imagine how Shell could continue to sell. I mean, like like ENI, I mentioned that they plan to sell only sustainable products by 2050. It's the same for Shell, and it's basically the same for all of these companies that are that are targeting net zero by 2050. And as I said, it doesn't mean withdrawing from transport fuel marketing, but it means switching from selling gasoline or diesel to bio biofuel, power, hydrogen, uh, whatever sustainable product they can find. Mm. And so we should probably just mention BP as well. Uh, we've kind of put them in this kind of second tier of these of these companies. And of course, they just took... Uh, some some really large uh, oil and gas related write offs and impairments, um, and they they've talked about this, but they kind of have a different, uh, or at least they're in a different position from some of these other companies. Yeah, I mean they, they're kind of second tier, basically because they haven't given much detail about. I mean they have said they want to get to net zero, that it would only apply to their own oil and gas production, which is which is already mm-hmm. quite ambitious. Uh, there's some detail uh, lacking about how they, they, they plan to, to get there. But remember that uh, Total or, or Shell are already at their second, uh, at their second round of announcement and, uh, and detail of, of their strategy. So, so uh, BP is, is starting a bit late. So, so, so at the moment, they, they look like they're they are lagging. But I, I'm, I'm quite sure that by, by September, when they're supposed to, to give more detail about their strategy, they, I mean, at least they'll try to catch up. Let, let, let's see. Uh, and yes, as, as you said, uh, the transition has consequences on, on the organization of companies. It's, it's what we've talked about with uh, ENI. It also has financial consequences because the transition means basically means slower demand. And slower demand means lower prices, permanently lower prices. And it's the, the stranded asset debate. Uh, and oil companies have argued for quite some time that they have very, le- very little truly stranded assets, meaning unproducible reserves, which is probably true. I mean, I think it's true. Uh, but still, they have a lot of reserves that are worth less than expected. Uh, and it's what, what happened with BP. They have Reserves, which which are producible even in a in a in a carbon constraint world, but since oil prices will be much lower than what was expected just six months or a year ago, uh, they've, they've they've announced they would write down about fifteen percent, fifteen billion dollars uh, worth of uh, of reserves. Uh, Repsol a few months ago now announced five billion dollars uh, of uh, of reserves to be written down. Uh, and all these companies are also drastically uh, cutting on exploration. Uh, and again, this is not temporary because of COVID nineteen. They would need to they would that they would need to save on exploration money for a few months. That's also permanent. Uh, so so that's 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 a big change. TJ, uh, one of the important tools included in the Energy Transition Service is, that that just launched is what we're calling the Vulnerability Index. That kind of gives a framework for the sort of side by side comparisons um, that you know kind of helps gauge how companies stack up against each other in terms of how prepared they are for changes right. the energy industry is facing. Uh, can you just talk briefly about what that index says about some of these companies we've been talking about and how they rank compared to some of the ones that we haven't touched on yet? Certainly, yeah. Our, our vulnerability index aims to assess which companies are best positioned to survive the transition and also which are the most exposed to transition risks. And so to do that, we evaluate companies based on both the resilience of their current portfolios, 
as well as their success in devising and carrying out plans to adapt or transform those business models. So we 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 do see that you know there are the European majors uh, are t are generally leading in this index. Um, in particular, Total, Shell, any Equinor, um, and that is thanks to both strong portfolio resilience scores as well as uh, some of the most advanced uh, energy transition strategies. You know, from setting long-term targets to laying out medium a medium-term pathway to 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 achieve those targets. Um, I would say BP and and to to uh, and and Repsol are are slightly behind their peers in this index, but they they have been among the 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 most active in the past six months and and are seeking to catch up. And Philippe uh, articulated this very well with respect to BP. So with with the given that they both plan to announce detailed strategies later this year, um, we you know we we expect those strategies will obviously receive a lot of attention and scrutiny. And also, will sort of our, inform our overall views on this, uh, on on their their where they stack up in this in this vulnerability index. Hmm. Okay, let's wrap up by talking about M and A for a minute and what role it will play in all of this, especially given the declining allure of oil weighted acquisitions these days. Uh, so uh, let's just start with you, Philippe. Um, what types of M and A have we seen so far? Is there any effort? to try to grow these energy transition capabilities organically within the major oil companies, or is it easier just to go buy them up? Well, I'd say that green energy is growing so fast that there's scope for organic growth. Uh, and, and oil majors, European oil majors are involved in, uh, in, in, in project development and, uh, and, and organic uh, activities. But what they're targeting in terms of their of their emissions reductions target is so big that substantial acquisitions are, are pro probably necessary too, in my opinion. Uh, what are we seeing? We're seeing a lot of investment in startups, but that's what every every big company does, uh, even uh, U.S. oil companies. I mean, Chevron, for instance, has a substantial uh, venture capital activity. Uh, Regarding bigger acquisitions, we've seen some interesting ones, uh, such as uh, Total uh, buying Saft, uh, uh, battery uh, manufacturer, uh, which is now starting to develop uh, battery gigafactories for cars with uh, French automakers, PSA and, and Renault. Uh, in the power sector, we've seen also some uh, substantial acquisitions in uh, retail marketing. Uh, which which are a new business to all companies. We've, we've seen Shell buying first utility in the UK, which became Shell Energy. Uh, they've also bought e ERM Power in Australia. Total has bought a company called Lamperis in Belgium, Direct Energy in France. And they've recently announced they would acquire a portfolio of customers from uh, the Portuguese utility EDP in Spain. Uh, these acquisitions I mentioned can amount to several hundred million dollars. Uh, but as I said, the targets are so ambitious that we probably need to see bigger uh, multi-billion dollars transactions. Uh, if you take ENI or Total, for example, Total wants to have 25 gigawatts of renewable projects, of renewable generation by 2025 up from uh, about 3 gigawatts uh, today, so 10 times what they have today. Uh, ENI wants 55 gigawatts by 2050, up from less than 1 gigawatt now, so more than 50 times, uh, actually 100 times more than what they have now. 
uh, that's quite substantial. They all say they can count on their, pro- on their project development skills, so on their organic skills. Uh, but it has already involved acquisitions of or joint ventures with other uh, other companies. Total has acquired a, a renewable developer called Eren. Uh, ENI has a joint venture with an Italian developer called Falk Renewables. Uh, but the 25 or 55 gigawatts I've, I've mentioned are, are, are a lot, but they need a lot more to, to get to their 2050 uh, targets. So I, 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 I think, in my opinion, it means that at some point in the future, I don't know when, uh, large-scale uh, acquisition targeting big established utilities will, will need to take place. I mean, otherwise, I, I really don't see how they would get to... 50 or 100 gigawatt of, of power in, uh, I mean, 30 years is a long time, but 50 or 100 gigawatt of, of, of power is, is really a lot, or, or 50 million customers is really a lot. I, I really don't see how they could get to that without, without a couple of big acquisitions. Mm. And TJ, uh, just stepping back a little bit um, and briefly, you know, what what is the appropriate way to evaluate these type of acquisitions, large or small? Um, you know, that in, in many cases represent entirely new areas of operation for these companies. I mean, are we still going to be talking about things like synergies or any of the other corporate buzzwords that we associate with right. M&A today? Right, right. Surely portfolio fit will take on new, a new meaning as companies become uh, make these sort of more radical shifts that, that Philippe is, is discussing. And I'd point back to that third phase, the transformational phase that I mentioned earlier. You know, these companies will be increasingly focused on how best to balance their legacy portfolios in oil and gas with emerging portfolios in low carbon electricity. Uh, you know, and so we also have to keep in mind that M&A can also mean selling out of, of the, their, their oil and gas portfolios as well. Uh, the best fit, you know, will likely be defined in various ways based on individual companies' core competencies and their strategic visions, uh, and then obviously shareholder returns and investor expectations. And so, uh, so it's, you know, I, I don't know if we're at, at a moment where we have a, you know, have a set of standards that, that, uh, that we can, can point to, but this is this will evolve as as will the the industry as a whole. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I think we got to leave it there for now. Uh, thank you, Philippe, and thank you, TJ. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone listening to the podcast today. The energy transition is something that we will continue to cover in depth at Energy Intelligence. So please check out our website at energyintel.com for the latest news and analysis. And do go back and have a listen to that podcast TJ did a few weeks ago announcing the launch of our energy transition service, which we are very excited about. My name is Luke Johnson. We'll see you next time.